Welcome back to another edition of the Fantasy Alarm Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I am your host, Colby Conway, at Colby R. Conway on Twitter. And with me, as always, as we approach closer and closer to opening day, is Matt Sells at The Sellsman on Twitter. So, Matt, how are things going for you in your neck of the woods? Uh, they're going they're going well. Um, had a very fun weekend with F1 and NASCAR. Had a very good betting weekend. So, if you like betting on those things, you should... Check out my picks when I have them on PicksWise. But other than that, it's been an absolute just cram session for baseball at this point. Because I've got my home league this weekend. I'm traveling halfway across the country for it. So I'm going to lose a couple of days in travel. So it's a cram session at this point for um, to keep my streak going. I have finished second in that league three years in a row. Looking to win. Certainly don't want to finish worse than second. That would not be great. so, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at right now is just cramming as much baseball knowledge into my head as possible. There's definitely been a lot of news going on from trades to signings to now we have spring training games. So we're getting some more data there. Players moving up and down the lineup. Some things I'm very convinced that I didn't think I would see. But, you know, here we are as we're getting close to the season and anything can happen in baseball. I believe that's one of the most famous cliches with it. So we'll touch on a couple of news and notes get into some spring training themes, everyone's favorite, who's hot and who's not talking about some spring training performances or just overall themes that we were kind of seeing. So after we recorded last week, we had a trade sending Randall Grichik over to Colorado. So a power guy like him stands to benefit going to cores. Rymel Tapia comes to Toronto. He should be in a spot to where he does get at bats. He will be surrounded by a much better supporting cast, but the at-bats are going to be the question there. For me, this is really, for fantasy, comes down to Grichuk. We've seen with him, as long as he gets the at-bats, he's 20-plus homers year in and year out. At, at least from base value, he's going to get the at-bats in Colorado. So I highly doubt this would be the year that he gets half of his games in cores that he breaks his 20-home run streak. Yeah, I'm right there with you in terms of ballpark. Obviously, he gets a boost. Everybody gets a boost going to cores, although – Toronto is not a bad place to hit either. Neither is the NL East, or sorry, AL East. Um, I'll talk about the other side of it, I guess, uh, in terms of Tapia. Look, the bat doesn't necessarily do very much for you, right? His game is getting on base and then trying to be a steals guy. He's got speed, doesn't have a whole lot of pop. Um, we're not entirely sure exactly where he's going to slot into the um the Blue Jays roster at this point, um, whether he's going to get full at bats uh, or not, I would find it hard to believe that he gets a full allotment of at bats, given that they have George Springer and Tiasco Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. already in their outfield. Um, but he's also pretty decent defensively, right? He's got the speed. He can play a couple of different outfield spots. So that's probably what they're what Toronto's looking at for him. Absolutely. Another trade that we had to actually just recently before we got on here, but um, Matt BD's heading to San Diego or I'm yeah, heading to San Diego leaves LA. So there are some holes in the Padres. I don't want to say team, but I'm going to say team and specifically their lineup. There are some holes. So one would have to figure his path to playing time has become uh, more vastly open and opportunities are going to be there for him. So it sounds like he's a guy we need to be paying attention to now, especially in deeper formats, because if he's going to get a good number of at bats, there is enough in that San Diego lineup to give him a little fantasy juice. 
Yeah, for sure. And if you look at his stats with the Dodgers, it's not like they were bad, right? He's had 550-something career plate appearances. He hit 260 in the 260 range with 18 homers, 24 doubles. That's not bad for a guy with, that's basically three-quarters of a season into an MLB career. Um, now, he plays generally he's a first baseman outfield guy. Okay, so let's see who San Diego has. They have Luke Voigt and Eric Hosmer. Well, I would tend to believe that Beatty is better than Eric Hosmer at this point. Um, though Hosmer probably DHs most of the time now with Voigt taking first base or DH. But here's the other thing. Who do they have playing left field right now? Do you know? Well, a lot of my best ball teams hope it's Jorge Alfaro. Yeah, um, according to most, according to their lineups this spring, it's mostly been Jerickson Profar. Matt Beatty is better than Jerickson Profar, for sure. Not even a question. Um, So I would expect Beatty to be pretty decently close to an everyday left fielder for them. uh, With Jerickson Profar going back to a platoon role or a bench spot or, you know, maybe sliding into second base because... They're kind of open in the middle infield right now with the Tatis injury. So, you know, they've got some they've got some dudes that can move around. But I would expect that Beatty, who was DFA'd by the Dodgers simply because they don't have a spot for him, uh, would be pretty close to an everyday left fielder for them. And when you look at Beatty's 162 game average for his career, 262 batting average, 12 home runs, a handful of stolen bases, 60 RBIs. Give this guy some at bats. What could go wrong? But make sure you leave the door open for Alfaro because all my best ball teams need him to be in the lineup pretty pretty regularly, to say the least. Uh, one other thing that is yet to be fully confirmed, at least from what I can see, but it seems, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, is that there's going to be humidors in all of the MLB stadiums. So essentially, what does it do? So the humidors, in the shortest of the terms, basically it prevents baseballs from drying out benefiting hitters. That's essentially... Um, yeah, dry baseballs have more bounce go further off the bat. So getting the humidors in there, or it's going to some of the pitcher-friendly parks that are more humid, you might see just a slight shift in kind of how things play. Now, one of them being San Fran. Do I think that Logan Webb becomes undraftable now? No, absolutely not. All those pitchers are still in play and good values. It's just something to note that it just might not be as extreme pitcher-friendly as it has been in years past. So we haven't gotten confirmation on this. We're kind of speculating now, but the one thing you'll want to notice is that the more humid parks, you might see just a slight offensive boost there. But again, this has not been confirmed yet from what I've seen. I mean, Colorado and Arizona have been using humidors for years now and balls still fly out of those parks. So I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned. Um, Hell, if the wind in San Francisco doesn't affect, the park i don't think the humidors will either so you know yep and then so we'll see hopefully we get if we get confirmation on that you can go into it a little bit more but like i said the humid parks that play pitcher friendly are going to be the ones where you could see any sort of shift in kind of how they play and it might not be seismic but just enough to kind of keep you keep you honest as they say and then unfortunately another thing that we have to talk about i don't want to say it's becoming to the point of like it's a certainty in life like death and taxes but Brent Honeywell Jr. shut down again from throwing, had an injury into uh, near the back of his elbow. I just spent the first five minutes before this podcast preparing the word. I didn't write it down, and I've subsequently forgot that word of where the the, uh, the injury was. But 
Brent Honey was someone who had a lot of talent coming up with Tampa Bay. Didn't quite work out. Just the injuries had really done him in and his screwball. We haven't really seen it flourish. Now he's shut down again. He was already pretty low on the fantasy radar for the most part just because of the uncertainty. And if he was healthy, how much is he going to throw? But at this point, I mean, Honeywell has got to be to someone maybe in your league you put on a watch list. And if he's healthy near the end of the year or the middle parts of the year, you can pick him up as a flyer. But he shouldn't be. I don't think he should be drafted in any format at this time. Uh, well, maybe the very tail ends of draft and hold. Maybe. Um, but basically, yeah, it's like the Olocranon, I think. Something like that. I probably just butchered it. Olocranon. That's what it was. There you go. When you bend your elbow and you're resting your elbow on, like, your desk, it's, like, the end of the elbow that you can feel, essentially. He basically has a stress fracture in that. And he's been shut down indefinitely. So that's, yeah, that's about it, right? That's what he did in Tampa Bay. Um, I know it stemmed from he had Tommy John, and then he broke his elbow and the return from that. and then, But he just seems like a dude who's too fragile to be throwing baseballs. So. That kind of stinks. Uh, what this does do, by the way, is until James Caprillion is healthy, it probably puts Paul Blackburn as the number five starter in the A's rotation, um, since that's where Honeywell was supposed to supposed to be. So might get a few starts out of Paul Blackburn. Doesn't really help his fantasy value very much at all. Uh, but that's basically what the A's rotation probably looks like now. The dreaded Alecranon injury. Hate to see it for Honeywell. Hopefully he can get past this and get back on the mound at some point here in 2022. But, of course, we do have spring training games going on. And even outside of performances, sometimes just even taking looks at lineups, you can see stuff that, well, you might like and other stuff that, well, you might not like. And I'll tell you one here. Power speed guy with Jazz Chisholm Jr. I do not like in the last couple of games that he's been hitting in the bottom of the order uh, back on Saturday. He hit actually dead bottom of the order against a lefty and then even against a righty he hit eight on i was about to say yesterday but on the 27th as we are recording this one now he did move back up on the 28th into about the fifth spot but you got to think he's going to steal bases regardless of where he hits in the order so that's a positive but you have to think the higher he hits in the order the better obviously we know that i don't like seeing him hitting that low and even the fifth you can sell me a little bit on the fifth but for me for him to get to a 2020 season this year, we need him hitting first or second for at least three quarters of the year. That's my thoughts. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, as a guy who has Jazz Chisholm this year in a keeper league, I certainly want him hitting higher towards the top of the order. Um, I'm looking up where he spent most of his at-bats last year um, as we speak. And it, according to Fangraphs, yeah, he got 255 at-bats. Uh, in the batting in the leadoff spot last year, 129 at bats, batting second. Um, 46 batting sixth was the next most. So, you know, he hit mostly towards the top of the order last year. I would presume that they would put him back towards the top again. Um, Don Mattingly seemed to be pretty well in favor of a Jazz Chisholm, Jorge Soler, Garrett Cooper top three. Um, in some, in some spots, I did see Soler lead off the other day, um, to start with some pop and then you get the speed and power of Chisholm. Um, I will say that his splits against lefties were not great last year. He did hit worse against lefties 
had a lot less homers, a lot less steals against lefties. Um, but that being said, the guys that you would expect to play second in his place on the roster didn't do well against lefties either. So, um, so I'm not sure that there's much of a platoon risk. I think right now they're just trying to uh, get some guys some looks at the top of the order. Because like Joey Wendell, not not a guy who's going to lead off, right? So I think it's just a way to get guys some looks um, towards the top without, you know, risking actual games. And that's and that's a good point, too. You see it with pitchers who they'll go out there on a particular outing and they'll just work their changeup that they throw 8% of the time in the season just because they're messing around with things. It's an opportunity to try things. So... Sure, is it a little worrisome seeing him hit eighth or ninth? Sure. Do I expect him to be there? Probably not. Um, you could sell me on him hitting ninth, though. You know, last year in three at-bats, hitting ninth, he hit 667. So if he hit 667 this year, then cool. We will take that. We won't see that. But you you, you see it. Teams are going to try things. They're going to mess around with certain things, like the Pittsburgh Pirates. I'll just be rather blunt here. There's no chance that Daniel Vogelbach get, is a late free agent signing for this team. Cheap power guy that we've talked about. And he's going to potentially hit leadoff for Pittsburgh. We've seen it here a little bit in spring. Again, I'm sure they're just messing around with stuff because they do have some other guys there that would seem more logical profiles for the top of that spot. But we've seen him now, you know, in the past handful of days, he's let off twice. So Daniel Vogelbach, first baseman, power bat, and potential leadoff hitter for a weak well, Pittsburgh Pirates lineup. So you say that, but at the same time, his OBP is pretty decent. Right. It's like, you know, over the last few years, he's had a he's had an OK OBP for sure. His walk rate over the last three years has been better than 14.7 percent every year. So from that regard, I see a lot of teams starting with with some some pop. Right. Like Miami has been experimenting with Jorge Soler at the top of the lineup. That guy's got no speed but he's patient and can hit homers and you can jump on a guy right away. So I'm not sure that you put Brian Reynolds in the leadoff spot in Pittsburgh. I'm not sure you put Cabrian Hayes there and the speed guys, the quote unquote speed guys that you do have don't have the walk rates that you would like to see out of the top of the order. So I don't necessarily think that it's some pipe dream to see Vogelbach leading off for for the Pirates, to be honest, because a lot of teams now are putting their best hitters uh, in the two hole. Um, and that would be Brian Reynolds for the for the Pirates, because statistically you get you actually average more at bats a year, I guess, or plate appearances and key spots in the two hole. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily that much of a shock to see Vogelbach leading off. So feet to the fire opening day is Vogelbach, the leadoff hitter. For the fourth or fifth place finishing in the NL Central Pittsburgh Pirates. Yes. Okay. Love it. And some of the, my best balls where I took him is some cheap power late. Might be okay. So, see what happens there. Talk about another leadoff hitter. Uh, Jeremy Pena in Houston got a lot of positive vibes, comments about him as being, you know, a potential star. And the past couple of days in spring, in spring training contests, they're experimenting with him near the top of the order. One guy like Pena, very talented, so we could see some fantasy potential from there, but you have to like the idea or even the thought of him hitting in front of the likes of Altuve, Brantley, Bregman, Kyle Tucker, stuff like that. So this has to be a pretty massive boost to Pena's fantasy outlook for 2022. 
Agreed. Um, the only other guy, like there's two other guys in this lineup that I would see as true leadoff type hitters. And one would be Kyle Tucker and one would be Jose Altuve. But I don't know that you want to put those guys in the leadoff spot. I think what you do for a young guy, to be honest, I think you have Jeremy Pena leading off with Altuve behind him, Bregman, Jordan Alvarez, Gurriel, Brantley. You know, you mix Kyle Tucker in there before he drops to like the sixth spot in the lineup. Because then you're assuring that Pena gets something to hit. If you hit him eighth, which is kind of where a lot of teams stick rookies, he's not going to get anything to hit, and so his numbers aren't going to be great. But if you hit him first or second, he'll get things to hit, and he'll bloom sooner in the major leagues than than you know typical rookies do. So I think this is a legit shot for him to – uh, to be a leadoff guy because, you know, we just talked about on-base percentage for, for Vogelbach and Pena's is so-so. But I think it comes down to the situation, right? Like, I think Pena's got a little bit more speed at this point than Altuve does, and I'm not sure you put Kyle Tucker in a leadoff spot right now. And so that, in that case... Pena's probably your best deals threat outside of Tucker and Altuve. And Pena's going pretty, pretty late in drafts here. And you look at some of these projections that are coming out, like um, the bat has him only hitting 240, probably system growing pains at the big league level, but 11 bombs, seven stolen bases. You have some that are having him approach 20 bombs and 10 stolen bases. So is I'm a little more optimistic on some of these 240 and 250 batting average considering he hit for a pretty good average throughout the minors i understand it's going to drop a little bit but could jeremy pena end up if we look back at the end of the year take a look back from the beginning could pena end up being the cheapest like 265 270 guy with 15 plus homers and 10 plus stolen bases like it surely seems like that because any best ball i've done i haven't taken him i don't even know if i've seen him being drafted in best ball. So I know it's a little bit of a different beast, but he could be one of these cheapest solid producers that we see this year. Oh, for sure. And um, Dusty Baker's already come out and all but said that Pena is his starting shortstop. Right. So, I mean, it's going to take a serious, seriously bad start for him to lose spots at shortstop because like on their roster, they don't necessarily have anybody that, I mean, they got Nico Goodrum, I guess. But, like, the falloff between Pena and Nico Goodrum is pretty decent there. Um, Aledmus Diaz probably isn't going to go back to shortstop at this point. So, yeah, I think you could legit see Pena hitting in the top couple spots of the Astros lineup. Now, we'll talk to – we'll bring it closer to you here. We'll go to Washington, and I'm, I'm going to give you a little two-for-one here. My first question is, talk to me about Victor Robles and what's going to happen with him in this lineup. And are we overlooking Alcides Escobar being maybe NL only, just being a guy that's going to get plenty of bats? Carter uh, Keyboom's now out for a little bit. Escobar has been hitting sometimes near the top of the order in spring training. So in NL only formats, it sounds like you could do much worse than Escobar. So talk to me about Robles and Escobar here. So, you know, there's there's growing concern during spring training that Robles isn't getting quite the at-bats that people thought he would as the quote-unquote locked-in center fielder. But 
you know, Davey Martinez said that they were having him get at bats in minor league games to work on specific things with his swing, just like we just talked about with pitchers throwing, you know, working on their curveballs or changeups or whatever. Um, but the problem is that his defense, which is great, it's goal goal of caliber, right? His defense, though, does not outweigh what he has lacked since 2019 in the batter's box. The pickup of Lane Thomas from the Cardinals last year at the trade deadline was really, really solid. And Lane Thomas just kind of, you know, he's still a youngish guy, um, can play a pretty good center field. He's got a better offensive tool set than Robles right now. And they're going to, I would see them giving him more of a shot than Robles at this point. In terms of left field, you could play Yadiel Hernandez there. Um for sure, um, there there's a few different ways you could go with left field, but it's looking a little rough here for for Robles at this point. Um, I don't know, and he's going to be hitting ninth probably. Although I would really like to see him hitting seventh or eighth because that's when his best OBP and strikeout rates and whatnot have happened, but. I could certainly see, I mean, Andrew Stevenson is is a pretty solid left fielder. Yadio Hernandez could play there. So he might be the odd guy out in Washington at this point. Um, as for LCD's Escobar, I think it's his, he's going to be the starting shortstop every day. The Nats don't have anybody else. Carter Keboom is going to be the third baseman when he's healthy and can prove that he can hit. Until then, it's Michael Franco's job to lose. Um... So in an NL only format, yeah, I think you could I think you could squeeze a handful of homers and some steals out of them. Um, it's not the most attractive play at 35 years old at this point, but you know he did do well in like a half a season with the Nats last year. Hit 288. Uh, that's his best batting average in quite a while. And I mean, he's not gonna he's not gonna do double digit steals anymore, but as an absolute bench grab, sure, why not in an NL only format? And in an NL only format for a guy who's based on like how you're talking about here, essentially locked in for at bats one way or another. That's I mean, you can't ask for much more than that. Sure, some of the other stuff might not be what it used to be or really what you would want it to be, but in those league specific formats, at bats are king. And Escobar also, Cesar Hernandez is going to be the leadoff hitter for the Nets basically all year. More cheap options in Washington. And they just added some uh, big-time veteran slugger in that lineup that should help with some of those counting stats for the other guys. So that is yeah. exciting nonetheless. As a Pirates fan, I do love Andrew McCutcheon. I do not like where he chose to sign. I don't like him going to Milwaukee. And it's not even because of him. It's just because I was about 113% in on Tyrone Taylor this year, being locked, essentially almost getting locked in to regular at-bats. And now that doesn't quite seem as much. There's a lot of bodies in that Milwaukee outfield. Yes, there is the DH, but you got three spots, and then you got the DH, but there's Christian Yelich, Andrew McCutcheon, Lorenzo Kane. You got Tyrone Taylor, as I mentioned. Hunter Renfro, David Dahl. There's just so many bats. And for a guy like Taylor, who had pretty significant splits last season, my my hope for a full-time role seems to have been squashed 
quite considerably, meaning that I will be relegated to using Taylor in DFS duties in 2022. So for me looking at, I know it's going to depend righty versus lefty, but it almost seems like an outfield of McCutcheon and Kane. Those seem to be the two that are probably the safest Renfro place in DH. And then maybe Taylor mixes in on with his splits and David Dahl until he gets hurt. Cause that's almost inevitable. It seems he would mix in there, but this Milwaukee outfield, a lot of bodies, not a lot of spots. Yeah. If I'm Milwaukee, I'm trading Tyrone Taylor to get, a little bit of prospect help. I'm not sure. You're not going to get a huge prospect, right? But you could get a decent enough dude that could help you because you've got, you know, you could use another arm um, in the bullpen, you know, maybe another first base option. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Tyrone Taylor right now is the odd guy out because Yelich is going to start, Kane's going to start, Renfro's going to start, and McCutcheon's going to be the DH. And until somebody gets hurt, there's no, there's no, you know, movement in that. So, um, to be perfectly honest, I would like the Nats to uh, make a move and go get Tyrone Taylor and play him in left field. Um, I think that would settle things down quite a bit. I could see some other teams hopping in there and getting some uh, outfield help as well. But yeah, Tyrone Taylor is pretty well blocked in at this point. And then continue with the spring training talk here. Talk about some guys who are you know, the, set, the quintessential who's hot and who's not list, but some guys who are performing a little bit. We don't have to spend too much time on Mitch Keller. I find a way to work him into every episode, especially when he is doing well. But the velos there, results this spring have been good. He's not walking guys, which has been a thing here in his young, in the early parts of his career. So uh, the Mitch Keller hype train is in full effect. So like I said, we don't have to touch much on him. In Miami, Jesus Lazardo, I believe it is seven innings and seven strikeouts for him. And he is looking exceptional uh here in miami so it, the problem is it's good that we are getting almost this like confirmation that it's like yep this is this is exactly it it's all working out for him now however that also means that his draft stock is rising and he's no longer the great value that he once was but nonetheless these early results for jesus Lazardo have to be incredibly encouraging Oh, they they for sure are. I've been on Twitter all weekend begging people to stop talking about Jesus Lazardo because I want him as a value in my home league um, on Saturday in that draft. And I'm not sure that's going to happen at this point, given that he's been the only Marlins guy being talked about all offseason, it seems like. Um, Alcantara got extended. He's the ace. Nobody talks about him. Trevor Rogers, hell of a season last year. Nobody's talking about him. Um, they're all talking about Jesus Lazardo and how awesome he looked. Now, here's the other thing that I might just throw out there that might be the reason why he's doing better. Um, Jacob Stallings was added to this roster this offseason. Why does that make a difference? Because Stallings had zero passed balls last year. None. Not a single one. So you've got a very good defensive receiving catcher behind the plate, which can help control some of the wildness that Lizardo um, can uh, occasionally bring. And Stallings is also very good at framing pitches, um, which also helps Lizardo. So, yeah, he's hot for good reason. He's had all of the tools, right? There's never really been a doubt as to whether Lizardo could be this guy. Um now, do we need to see it for in the regular season? Sure, but he's definitely worth the squeeze at this point. 
Absolutely. So Lazardo's moving up boards quick, and he's a guy that I'm all in on. Another youngster who's exceptional this spring is Bobby Witt Jr. No surprise that he's been dominant yet again. It seems like he's always good in spring training. Beyond the fact of just literally being hot within the batter's box, again, they could be experimenting with things, but Bobby Witt Jr. has been hitting second of late after starting off in the bottom of the order in a couple of the early lineups or the early editions of the lineups in spring training. So Bobby Witt Jr., I wrote about it in a player profile that's up over at Fantasy Alarm right now, so you can check that out. But the big thing with Witt Jr., if he hits second, great. Kansas City's going to let him run. doesn't matter if he hits first, fourth, ninth, whatever. He's going to run regardless. That's just that's that team. That's their mentality. That's what's going to happen. But after about a week or two into the season, depending on your league settings, he's getting eligibility at third base, which is one of the more shallow positions. And using the projections at Fantasy Alarm, when I was looking at it here, there are very few third basemen that are projected for 2020, and Witt has a legitimate shot to get there. So this is huge for him because right now at third base, there's only three third base projected for over 20 stolen bases, and only one of them is in the 2020 club being Jose Ramirez, who's one of the first five or six, seven players off of the board. So Bobby Witt Jr. is going to be great for fantasy this year regardless. But now we get the chance he's going to gain third base eligibility. He just might hit second in that lineup is just fantasy value is going to the moon. So it's hard. It's really hard to argue with these results in spring. It's kind of how everything is playing out for Witt Jr. Yeah. And, you know, we'll harken back to what we said about Jeremy Pena. Why wouldn't you hit Bobby Witt Jr. in the top of the order? You want this guy to be the cream of the crop of, you know, the, the, the call-ups, right? That's why you're bringing him up. He's ready to hit. And then you're going to bury him and have him hit in front of Michael A. Taylor and Nicky Lopez. Like, no disrespect to the year that Nicky Lopez had last year, but why not give him the why not give Bobby Witt Jr. the protection of Salvi Perez? Right? Like, you're going to hit him between Merrifield and Salvi Perez. The guy's going to get pitches to hit. And as for, you know, he's not leading off, so he's not going to steal. I don't think so. Uh, Merrifield and Witt, if they both get on base, why not double steal in front of Salvi Perez so he doesn't have to bomb it over the outfield wall to score the guys? Right? Yep. Like, they're going to run. Kansas City is predicated on the run game. They have been for about a decade now. And, again, the best way to get rookies up and accustomed to having good years in the majors is to hit them in the second spot in the order. And that's exactly what Kansas City's planning to do here. And the last guy that we'll touch on here, I'm very excited about the early spring return here in L.A. is Joe Adele. So you're looking here through his first 22 spring at bats. We got three home runs. We got three stolen bases, an OPS of 1.093. Here's the big thing. When you look at these spring training performances, sure, you can look at the overall, the the hard numbers as you want and just say, oh, you know, 273 average, good. Pop is good. He's running. That's good. The big thing for Adele, and we've seen it here throughout his young career, strikeouts have been a real problem for him with a career strikeout rate of 32% in the bigs but this spring we're only sitting at about 24 percent an improvement like that could be huge and you're seeing this potential like it's kind of the same they talk about some of the other guys the tools have never been the issue the, everything has been there it's just kind of putting it all together and cutting back on the strikeout so if he can carry this into the season there still might be a slightly higher strikeout rate than one would like but 
Joe Adele could be on his way to 25 plus bombs and 10 plus stolen bases with ease. The talent's there. There's no questioning the talent. Oh, for sure. He was when he like in their system. Nobody questioned the talent. I mean, that we were all salivating over having Mike Trout and Joe Adele next to each other in the same outfield. Now, as for the strikeout rate, I will say in the 35 games he played last year in the majors, he posted a strikeout rate of just under 23%. That's great. He had a 246 batting average. Okay. But let's take a look at this. He had a 298 BABIP and a 303 WOBA. That means he's doing some damage. The batting average might not be there, but he's making good contact. He was patient. He was, you know, not striking out nearly as much. Now, the walk rate we would like to see come up a little bit from 5.7, but yeah, we're just nitpicking now. There's no reason to think that there's not an outfield spot just awaiting Joe Adele. They've been holding one open for a couple of years now. Um, As for where he's going to hit in the lineup, this is where it gets tricky. He probably winds up hitting sixth or seventh in this lineup. Because if everybody's healthy, you have Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, Jared Walsh, Anthony Rendon as the top four hitters. Then you could put Brandon Marsh as five or six. Probably Matt, Max Dassey at five or six. And then Joe Adele behind him. So it might take a little bit of a hit on his counting stats. But I don't see any way that he cracks the top half of that lineup right now. Yeah, he's likely going to slot six, probably right, six or seven. Maybe on a good day he gets to five. But likely that's What I would actually range. like to see is have him actually hit ninth. I actually want him to hit ninth. Well, then when he gets on base, he's got the top of the order there to help him out. Right, and exactly. Because right now, too. if he hits seventh, he's got Matt Duffy and, and Fletcher behind him in yeah. some in some order, right? That's not that's not great protection. If he hits ninth, there's a shot he leads off innings. But even if he doesn't, if he hits ninth, who's coming up behind him? Otani and Trout. So... To really boost his fantasy value, I actually want Joe Adele to hit ninth, which sounds counterintuitive. And then on the other hand, some guys who have been struggling this spring, there's not much to be said about Cody Cody Bellinger, but the strikeouts. Oh, we, we talked about how the strikeouts cutting back for Adele have been good, whereas uh, Cody Bellinger has a 70% strikeout rate this spring. I don't know how else to slice and dice that. It's just, it is what it is for Bellinger. And strikeouts have been a problem of late. And that's why he was basically platooned last year near the end of the year. And what a fall from grace it's been for him. So he's been a value in drafts kind of until this spring has happened. And this is one of those things where you can't take everything from spring training. But for a guy who dealt with strikeouts and needed to make more contact, who is now striking out a 70% clip in spring, that's something I'm going to take away from. So I'm, I've become more reluctant, reluctant to draft Bellinger, even at his suppressed draft capital. Yeah, now... Here's the other here's the other thing. If you look at the Dodgers roster as it's currently constructed, you might not think there's any way that Bellinger loses playing time because there's not necessarily a bona fide center fielder uh, on the roster. But what I will say is Chris Taylor can play left field. AJ Pollock can play center field. And Gavin Lux is currently on the bench and he can play second base. So don't be surprised if Cody Bellinger goes stretches of time in which he's actually not on the field if this keeps up. Because there are some major holes in his swing, and he has not yet figured it out. And it seems like pitchers, 
know exactly how to attack them. And, you know, it, it's pretty it's it's a pretty stark fall from grace. But I don't see any way that he gets close to 20 home runs with the way his swing is currently right now. And it's velocity that's really been a bugaboo for him. And nowadays everyone's throwing hard and everyone's throwing hard all the time. So that is going to be an issue for him. On the other hand, in Seattle, Jared Clinic, again, all the talent in the world, strikeout rate of 28% last year, only hit a buck 81 last year. So the average is a bit of a liability. He's going to figure some things out. Hasn't exactly been the best of springs for him either, as he's sitting at a 35% strikeout rate. He only has a 182 BABIP, so kind of take that hitting 118 with one of his hits being extra bases. I don't want to take too much from him just because all the talent is there and he doesn't have bona fide holes, or at least as well documented as Cody Bellinger does. But maybe, maybe is this something where we kind of just buy into the talent and just say, you know what, it's just a rough spring. Maybe I'll get him cheaper now and hope that all the talent pays off. Or do you have significant concerns at this point with Kalenic? Um, or yes. To I don't have, I don't have concerns at this point. No. Um, the pedigree is there as a, as a, you know, prospect to not be concerned, right? Again, we don't know if he's working on a certain thing in his swing, possibly. Is he trying to push so that he can impress the the new acquisitions this year? Maybe. Is he a cold starter? Maybe, right? Like, I've talked about this before. Anthony Rendon is a notoriously cold starter when he's healthy. There was a few years ago where he, he went the entire month of April and put up one RBI. And then wound up finishing the year with like 85 RBI, just like he normally does, right? So maybe Kalenic is a slow starter. Maybe it's the fact that he's seeing a bunch of dudes that he's never seen before, which can happen in spring training. Um, so I'm not terribly concerned about Jerry Kalenic. On the mound, we have Aaron Nola. And the big thing here, looking at his numbers, is they're, they're there. Uh, the one number that really jumps out to me is the home runs that he's allowed thus far here in spring. So when you're looking at Aaron Nola's spring training stats through his first handful of starts, I believe it's four home runs that he has allowed thus far. So the home runs in recent years haven't necessarily been a big issue looking back since 2019, 1.2 homer per nine, 1.1 and a 1.3. But again, maybe we don't know if he's working on something and we can't quite tell from that, but just at face value, the home runs this spring have been a problem. And Nola's going off the board very early as a pitcher who's expected to steady many fantasy rotations. So I'm I'm a little I'm a little weary of the home runs here this spring. Maybe it's just me, but four home runs over a handful of innings isn't exactly something I want to see from my fantasy ace. Uh yeah, not so much. Plus he also had a down year a little bit last year, right? Like the numbers were kind of there, but it was kind of the long ball that did him in a little bit last year, too. So this is now a recurring theme with him. Um, and given the fact that Zach Wheeler is dropping in drafts, um, people are kind of leaning on Aaron Nola to be the ace of that Phillies lineup, which should put him in position for decent amount of wins. This is this is a bit concerning for me because it's a, it's continued since last year, too. And the, the eight. Eight strikeouts to no walks through five innings is excellent. However, when four four of the five hits that you've allowed have sailed over the fence, a little a couple too many barrels for my liking, just to say the least. And considering that Jose Quintana's also allowed four home runs this spring, just take that for what it's worth. I'll actually go ahead and you kind of mentioned Zach Wheeler, but overall, who's not 
hot this spring is there are pitchers substantially falling in drafts. I get it. Some are injury. Oh, actually, the majority are injury concerns with like Zach Wheeler, Chris Sale, Luis Castillo, Shane Boss, Jack Flaherty. Um, in some main events, they're dropping to a point where I never expected that they would get to. I understand drafts are coming up. Pitchers, a very fickle position. You want guys who are going to be out there. And these are some big names that are falling. So it's ultimately going to come down to, do you believe that they're going to be healthy when they can return? They can give you good innings. Or are you dancing with the devil with these guys that you're going to draft pitchers who are already injured going into the season? So some of those guys are dropping to points where I never would have expected them to go through. Hopefully we get some news here before the end of spring about some of them and just some more clarity uh, around them. But last thing we have here, Robinson Cano has been putrid this spring and somehow is still going to at least open the year as a likely DH candidate for the Mets. So if his struggles continue into the season, at what point does Dom Smith take control or maybe even like a JD Davis type take control of the DH spot in New York? I would think it had to be pretty quick, right? Um, clearly, they spent all this money and overhauled the entire offense and pitching staff, for that matter, to contend now. You can't have that big of a hole in the middle of your lineup, um, which is where <clears throat> excuse me, people think that um, Cano or their DH spot would hit. So, you know... Is it a shock that he's not hitting? No, not really. Um, he missed all of the shortened 2020 season because of what injury, right? Or did he opt out? Something like that. And then last year, uh, missed it due to an entire season suspension due to PEDs. So clearly the dude knew he was losing some of his skills and started, you know, trying to uh, artificially boost them. So... I would think there's a pretty short leash for Robinson Cano at this point. I know that they're trying to salvage anything they can out of that terrible deal um, that they made to get Edwin Diaz and Cano and gave up Kalenic. Um But when you have Dom Smith and J.D. Davis sitting on your bench who are quite capable hitters, you can't let Robinson Cano flail out there for very long. And let's not waste Francisco Lindor's bounce back 2022 season either. The spring results here have been quite encouraging. But get Dom Smith in the lineup. He has looked damn good in the batter's box here in spring training. So that's the week that was in baseball, essentially. So we'll have to see what comes up in the next week. We're getting closer to opening day. There's going to be more news and notes. Make sure you stay abreast of all the content at FantasyAlarm.com that's coming out. If you want some best ball draft recaps, you can check them out. If you want to join Best Ball Dress, we can get you into those, whether it's at RT Sports or in some BB10s over at the NFBC. But long story short, just check out all of the great stuff that's coming out at FantasyAlarm.com, and then check out all of Matt's great work, both baseball and every other sport in between, as Matt does just about everything on the site. So once again, FantasyAlarm.com. This has been this edition of the Fantasy Alarm Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and we will see you next week.